0: This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today our guest is Dr. Steve Long. He's the founder and president of Motair Consulting here in Colorado Springs. Steve, thank you so much for taking time to come by and be a guest on the show.
1: Oh, My pleasure, Bob. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. If we could, tell us a bit about your business and who you serve.
1: Like you said, I'm the president and founder of Motair Consulting, which is a performance enhancement firm. That helps manage risk, preserve capital, and enhance value through management, development, and management assessment services. So I built a predictive model of human performance and leadership while I served as the head of performance psychology in the human performance lab at the Air Force Academy. And the model has been successfully applied to business, athletic, academic, military, and artistic performance. And my business clients average 115% improvement in financial performance on average with a zero failure rate. So basically, it's a data
0: company. I think about for the business owner that's listening, you go, well, I could do with 115% improvement on pretty much anything at any time. So if I'm that business customer and I go, what is it that I should expect if I hire you to come in and evaluate my leadership team and my company? What should they expect?
1: You're going to learn things that you don't know about. And basically what the behavioral analyses do is a shortcut mechanism is that particularly clients I serve, what they find out in two to three weeks would normally take them two to three years to find out. And only under, they find out in, under dire circumstances.
0: I'm your prospective new client, and I'm getting ready to do whatever I'm trying to do. I hire, and you come through the door. What time frame should I expect and what kind of steps do you take to go through and arrive at a conclusion?
1: So there's two elements. There's the management assessment component and the management development component. And the management assessment component is what I'm doing there is I'm measuring the behavioral factors of strategic execution. And strategic execution is simply the ability to execute the strategy. So there are some strategies that are better than others, and there are some managers who execute strategy better than others. But when you put a good strategy with a really good manager, that's when you really blow the doors off.
0: So you have the visionary versus the operational person?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you can combine the two. I don't do anything with strategy. All my degrees are in education. That's for the MBAs to determine as far as what to do. But what research has found is that strategies only deliver 63% of what they promise. So let's say you got a proposal for $100 million. Well, it's just lop 30 or 40% off right from the start. Because at best, they're only going to get 60 to $70 million. But then you combine the inability to execute strategy, and then it goes down significantly. And this is where people don't understand as far as what they should do. Because it's what I call the strategy execution paradox. So when things go south, how do you know what's at fault? Which lever? Exactly. So if it's the strategy, well, how do you know? Because there are strategies out there that Jack Welch couldn't execute, okay? But then there are people who screw up the best strategy possible. They simply don't have the execution skills to pull it off. And what my behavioral analysis do is basically empower my clients to determine which lever to pull.
0: We were talking a little bit beforehand about case studies, maybe some examples, whether it's an individual who's trying to come in and buy a company, whether it's a new business owner or an HR department trying to evaluate a company, and you had some case studies. Maybe talking about a case study would paint a picture in the mind of the listener.
1: Probably one of the better ones is in succession planning, mm-hmm. is I was engaged to work with candidate for a uh, CEO position of a $300 million ESOP. And the current CEO was charged with identifying three external candidates and three internal candidates. And because it was an ESOP, chances were they were going to go with an internal candidate. And he was highly regarded in the company, obviously, because he was a candidate. and He had a seat on the board, but sometimes having a seat on the board, and, and a lot of CEOs out there will understand this if they had maybe not conflicts, but you know, some rough waters with their board, is that sometimes familiarity breeds contempt. And so the board was not really interested in him as a candidate. He was third out of three and a distant third out of that. So, you know, we ran the behavioral analysis, found out the strengths, weaknesses, tendencies, blind spots, and we just worked on a few issues. And not only did he become a better leader, but he actually started doing his job a whole lot better. And so he was offered the job. And that's a good thing, right? But it goes more than that. Because once he was offered the job, then he grew the company from three hundred million to four hundred million, expanded the borders, you know, went to the international, grew it to Europe, grew it to Canada, grew it to Australia, grew the company by twenty-five percent. They would have never, never have predicted that. Never. So the analyses are serviced as two different things. One, it helps identify risk factors, but also it provides data to establish a learning plan.
0: When you talk about the risk factors. So in this instance, what risk factors did you identify?
1: Impulse control. Okay. Is that he would just spout off in a board meeting about whatever came into his head. So I gave him a tool and he actually brought the tool into the board meetings and he would just have it on a piece of paper. And then he just went by it and he actually transformed right in front of their eyes. Is that he became a different person, became a different leader, and they started seeing him in a different way.
0: For him, I'm sure if it's from here to here, your impulse on your commentary, what was the transformation in him when he started using the tool and the recognition factor that he had that it made a difference?
1: When I give a keynote, I say I have a magic trick. Okay? (laughs) Did you bring it? Yeah. (laughs) Perfect. Yeah, I got it. I improve performance by just by talking to people. Mm -hmm. And you talk to business leaders all the time. And you talk about the cost as far as whether it's IT or cultural transformation and what kind of investment they have to make and then see what kind of comes on the backside of that. I just talk to people. No chairs have to be moved. No desks have to be moved. You You don't have to get IT involved. Performance improves just by me talking to them and they talking to me because they change how they think about things. They change how they perceive the situation and they actually see the situation with greater reality.
0: That must be an interesting conversational technique to go into a disparate group of skill sets in a company and different past agendas to be able to go in and do you interview them in group setting or do you interview these people in single individually, sing- individually? Yeah. what's the typical time frame for an interview like that
1: well it's not really an interview once they supply the data I aggregate it and then generate the behavioral analyses. Okay. And then I go over the behavioral analyses with them, show them what they're good at, what they're bad at. And then from that point on, it's really up to them. They have full control. So they dictate the pace. They dictate the direction. So if they want to start out with strengths, okay. If they want to start out with weaknesses, okay. But Mm -hmm. if they want me to take the wheel, then I take the wheel. And I say, okay, this is where we're going to start. Mm -hmm. So they're in control. But the model that I built is, consists primarily of two things, is the assessments and then the development aspect. The assessments are comprised of the uh, psychological inventories and the behavioral analysis. And it's really important to understand this, particularly for the people listening to this podcast, is that the biggest problem I have, Bob, in my business is following people who don't know what the hell they're talking about. And there's a lot of them in my business, Mm -hmm. okay? So when it comes to psychological inventories, the first thing that I ask about, is it valid? Is it reliable? Okay? Mm -hmm. Because if it's not, those tests aren't worth anything, okay? They're not worth this paper right here, okay? So I'm sure you've heard of Mm Myers-Briggs. Doesn't meet scientific standards for validity or reliability. Mm-hmm. But it's the most popular and most widely used psychological instrument in the world. That's the problem that I face. Yes. All right. So I only use valid and reliable instruments. So the data I get back is valid and reliable. And when people, when I share the behavioral analysis with them, say, wow, that's really accurate. Or wow, I didn't really know that about me. I said, well, all the behavioral analyses are are a mirror. I'm just holding up a mirror. Mm-hmm. That's all they are.
0: Whether you want to see it or not.
1: Whether you want to see it or not. Yeah. All right. But now, and when it comes to M&A advisory, private equity firms and succession planning, things like that, there's a certain degree of risk, Mm -hmm. okay, with a manager or management team. So like in an M&A situation, private equity situation, what are you really buying?
0: Intellectual property is an enormous part of that.
1: Yeah. Well, what are you really buying? I mean, you have the business. Mm -hmm. And every private equity firm has these really smart guys. But the fact the guy down the street with his private equity firm, he can add just as well as this guy. Yes. Okay. But what do you really know about the management team? And that becomes the stumbling block. So what are you buying? And if you don't know what you're buying, well, are you really serving your investors? Okay. So I'm basically able to tell them what the risk factor is with this
0: management You know, it's interesting when you talk about the risk factor, you know, one of the key tenants when you're looking is how do you de-risk a business from a buyer's eyes? You go through and you say, well, here's the balance sheet, here's the contracts, here are all the standard items, balance sheet, and so on. And then you go, well, do you have a CEO? You know, is the business transferable? Is the owner of the business or not? And you're going in and go, okay, past that point, on the surface, you have a CEO, yeah. you can transition, you have all the C-suite filled out, I can look at all the other parts. But you're doing a qualitative analysis.
1: No, quantitative.
0: Quant- okay. Quantitative. Quantitative analysis of the leadership team and looking for gaps and trying to re- de-risk that.
1: Well, just identify what the risks are. There's always risk. Sure. Right? But depending on what the market is and, and how valuable the product or service is, mm-hmm. how tight the market is. And these are all things that the buyer or seller have a complete understanding of mm-hmm. that I really don't know.
0: Yeah. And the M&A guy is pretty good at looking at that. They're great at that. There are some in specific niches, they know it really well. But I think about the aha moment when somebody goes through and says, okay, I got all that. I mean, it looks like everything else. And you go, but I got this management team. You go, is it a blue one, a red one, or a green one? What shade of that do I have? And where's the gap? And if you have a gap in the leadership team, when you look at a highly quantitative analyzed team versus maybe a mid-level team, what do you think the multiple difference is on buy price between the two?
1: That's hard to tell because like within that 63%, mm-hmm. I can get it closer to the 100%. Mm-hmm. But it has a lot to do with, one, the quality of the product or service, mm-hmm. the intensity of the competition within the marketplace, and then the talent of the manager and management teams themselves. Mm-hmm. Like you can't make chicken salad out of chicken crap. Mm-hmm. Right? So if they're garbage, yeah. I'll make them better. But it still may not be enough to handle the multiples that you bought this by because they're all paying 10 to 15 times above a beta, and so they're under extreme pressure to get the returns for their investors.
0: You know, when utilized by a private equity M&A firm first time, and you get done, what's the typical commentary by the private equity team after you come back and go, fellas and ladies?
1: Yeah, we thought we'd take a flyer on you. We had no idea this this could be the result. Uh uh-huh. But I've been in this for a long time. And it's really no different than sports. I coached football for a long time and you look for talent. It's a talent-based business. And if mm-hmm. you don't have the horses, you're not going to win. Mm-hmm. Again, it comes back to the strategy and the talent. But when you, got, when you have good talent and you have a really sound strategy, many times you still don't win. Okay? So what else is it? And so I go into what people would call the intangibles and I make them tangible. I identify what those qualities are and then I put a number next to them. And nobody else is doing that. And that's why they're intrigued by it. But most of them don't really believe in it until they actually get into it. And then there's another phenomena afterwards. They're like, ah, who no, really knows how much impact he had. But there's a causal relationship there. I mean, the relationship is really strong because there's no other intervention being implemented.
0: You know, so, and, from, and from a data guy, if you're a data guy, yeah. being able to go through and you go, what do you mean you don't? You can't quantify the differential. Because you brought the data forward?
1: Yeah. Well, I do a pre-test, then a Uh post-test. And performance is complex. And so there's no cause and effect. There's relationships. And all I say is that just like in sports, in sports, there's like seven different ways to enhance performance. And I'll see if I can remember what they are. Strategy, technique, conditioning, injury rehab, nutrition, and then psychology. I'm leaving something out. I said injury rehab, that's the one I usually forget. But the fact is you cannot separate the psychology from the strategy, okay? And basically what I do is I help people put those puzzles together. And my job is to basically make the client is the person who pays me, and that could be anybody. Mm -hmm. But the subject is the person I'm working with is the subject is what I'm trying to help them do is become aware of how they work best. Because most people are either unaware or they think they know, but the reason why, they end up pushing a rock up a hill. Mm-hmm. And when they get done with my program, not only are things easier, but they're performing at a much higher level. And it's just one of those things. They would have gotten there at some point, maybe three years, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. All I do is expedite.
0: Well, you know, I think about professional athletes have a team of coaches. They go, do you want to spend really, you have a finite period of time in the athletic arena. And do, would you like to accelerate your progress or not? When you go into an organization, what's the typical pushback from the team that's in place at the company?
1: Everything's fine. And my response to that is, okay, if you're satisfied with mediocrity, I'm not your guy. But if you want to be great, then this is something that people who want to be great check out. But it basically comes down between a growth-oriented mindset and a fixed mindset. Is that Carol Dweck, a psychologist at Stanford, wrote a book maybe 10, 12 years ago called The Growth Mindset. And she basically explained everything that I've been talking about for the past 20 years is the only thing that I find as a profile attribute who's a suitable candidate is people who have a growth-oriented mindset. And people who have a fixed mindset basically say, well, I can't get any better. This is basically what it is. And those people are going to be stuck in the sand. But people who have a growth mindset, they will continue to grow. And then they'll realize that even though And admittedly, this is a different approach. It's a unique approach. Once you exhaust all your other options and you're still not making your numbers or you're somewhat dissatisfied or you have that growth oriented mindset and say, I wonder if I can still get better. That's when people usually give me a chance. But for the most part, one guy is going out on a limb and says, yeah, I want to bring him in. But then there's two or three others who are looking kind of sideways and go, okay, if you want to do this, go right ahead.
0: I think about doing what you did, get you where you are. And you go, so it reminds me of the S-curve. You plateau at some point. And you kind of go, so if we kept doing it the same way, we're going to keep getting a similar outcome.
1: If you always do what you've always done, you're, you're always, always going get, to get what you, you got. always got.
0: And you think about how do you take and adjust that mindset? And it's a willingness to go, I don't have the answers, all of them. I'm willing to hear some hard truth. And I think about as you go in and you do circling back, when you are working with the military and so on and using this tool, Mm -hmm. assessing whether it was cadets or military spec ops teams or whatever, were you surprised at some of the outcomes that you found when you were doing the assessments?
1: No, not when I was doing the assessments. But as far as the results, when cadets started doing better academically, that was the wait what moment oh, okay, they improved their GPA by a full-letter grade, and I really never talked to them about academics. They just applied what we talked about, you know, within their sport, and they just applied it on their own. But then the cadets started coming to me, either when they were about to graduate or after graduation. This is not a middle management program, okay? Mm -hmm. This is for people who really want to be great. Mm -hmm. And these guys wanted to be commandos in the special forces, or they wanted to be F-16 pilots. And so they would call me and say, hey, doc, I'm in this program, and it seems like I plateaued, and what do you got for me? And we would just talk about situations. And the academy experience, and before that, I was the director of the Peak Performance Clinic at the University of Kansas, and I had some similar results. I wasn't there long enough to really build a body like Mm -hmm. I did at the academy, but it was similar. Is that, you know, not only academics and athletic performance, but also relationships Right? Things like that were, you know, were just getting better. They were just managing themselves. You know, there's self-management and then there's relationship management. And one of the things I learned was that you know, if you want to lead and manage others, you have to first lead and manage yourself. But the cadets, who then became second lieutenants, you have to understand everything that my programs at the Air Force Academy inside the human performance lab were all voluntary. Mm-hmm. Right? And you being former military, understand that just about everything in the military is mandatory. So the first thing I would start out with was team seminars. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to show up. Maybe the coach mandated it, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. If they wanted to get up and leave, they could get up and leave.
0: You know, and I think about that pre-qualifies the crowd. They're motivated to change. And so if they're a volunteer, they show up.
1: Yeah, but also within a crowd, if you get that negative energy out, it really helps. So if you don't want to get better, I really don't want to work. I don't want you around.
0: We were talking about that. And so you've got this group of volunteers, right? Mm -hmm. And there's always a turd in a punch bowl. There's always one.
1: Yeah. Sometimes they're More. at the top.
0: Yeah. And so you look at that, and so you've got that group dynamic, whether you're in a military group or you're in, up at the academy. Mm-hmm. What do you do to try to take in, either mitigate or move that particular?
1: Oh, I don't know. Do no, they deselect. They deselect? Yeah, they deselect. It's not part of their value
0: system. Yes.
1: Okay? This is just something else I have to do. So and
0: Unwilling to change?
1: Yeah, unwilling to change. Um, there was a gal... She was a soccer player and she loved soccer. She was the best player on the team. And I was just outside watching practice. And she comes up to me after the coach dismisses them. She goes, Doc, I need to see you. And she, yeah, I can see the tears in her eyes. And she was just going through all kinds of change. Mm-hmm. She just got engaged. She didn't take enough credits her sophomore year. So she was overloaded on her yeah. senior year. And for the people out there, the military academies are really hard. Mm-hmm. I'm a state school guy and I went to some good schools. but Nothing, nothing like the service academies. Even the Ivy Leagues can't compare to this, okay? It's really hard. I mean, the military experience is hard. The athletic, they're trying to compete as Division One athletes and really, you know. And
0: they have to keep their grades up. And most of them. Not
1: only keep their grades up, but they're taking really hard classes. There's no gut classes. I mean, mm-hmm. even for humanity majors, they still have to take engineering classes. Yes. All right? So it's really hard. And not only that. As far as keeping the grades up, but they take twenty-one credit hours a semester on average. They graduate with one hundred and sixty-four credits. Right, we're BSing a BA out of state every other school is one hundred twenty-four, one hundred twenty. Oh, they think credits.
0: fifteen hours a quarter is a load.
1: Fifteen credits for the cadets is so light; it's yeah. ridiculous. Right. So this gal, she was taking like twenty-four credit hours. Okay, and she's engaged, and then her family, which was military, just moved overseas, so she lost that support system. And this is mm-hmm. before Skype. So she didn't really have that. And all she could think of is, what am I going to do when we graduate? And how much, you know, we're not going to have any money. I mean, all parts of her value system was mm-hmm. in just complete disarray. Well, you know, I just put her through an exercise and she really took to it. Because the only option she saw was to quit soccer. That mm-hmm. was the only option. Mm-hmm. Everybody on, at the academy is on scholarship. So if you yeah. quit a sport, you don't lose anything. Yeah. All right. But she loves soccer, so that was the conflict that she was facing. And I just put her through this exercise, and things just became much more clear to her. She was the first athlete, female athlete, in the academy's history to be named all-conference to a Division I conference, because the year before, they were Division Two. It was the first year they moved to Division I. And she was a really good player, and she loved the game. She just didn't know how to manage her life with all the change that was going on. So the service academies are just really difficult. And, you know, when it comes to working with people and when you work with athletes, you want to help them achieve their dreams. And it's great when they do achieve their dreams, mm-hmm. but it's a zero sum game. Cause if, if, the team you're working with doesn't win, somebody else wins mm-hmm. okay. every time. Yeah. In business, it's different business. If the company goes South, doesn't mean somebody else is really doing a whole lot better but there's a whole company of people who just lost their jobs,
0: Families and children yeah. and lifestyle. And right. Bit. And
1: so that degree of risk is significant, but there's nothing that compared to the F-16 pilots and the commandos that I worked with. Well, listen,
0: you make a boo; somebody really suffers or dies.
1: Exactly. And as you probably know, there's two ways to evaluate the mission.
0: Is done or not done.
1: Done or not done. And then did you come home? Yes. All right. And all the people I work with came home and they all accomplished their mission. And you know, that is something I'm really proud of because that's nobody, I don't know of anybody else who had that degree of responsibility when working with people to enhance their performance because there's always risk involved. And where is that line? Where is that judgment? And that's really what the model is. Well, and for the, com-
0: for the commander, right? And the commander's got to take and assign a task to be done. Mm-hmm. All right. And so you look at the, as a commander, you really don't want to take somebody out in, in a poorly planned mission where you have casualties involved. And so I think about the responsibility of person tasking the spec option units to perform a mission. And you think about, did I make the right decision? Did I take and consider all the factors? So for the, back to the soccer player, what was the aha or pivot for her? What do you think was the pivot? There's really
1: for her? not a whole lot of aha. Yeah. No client has ever came to me and said, well, that was the aha moment. But a pivot, yes, is that she just saw her life in a much different way. Is that she could include soccer and still get do the twenty four or twenty seven hours that she was Mm -hmm. working on. She was engaged, which means it's a period of moving the boyfriend from the social life to the family life. Mm -hmm. Okay, and she realized that that wasn't really her job. That was really up to her parents. Mm -hmm. They were going to have to make that decision, Mm -hmm. and so she just had a greater sense of what was in control and the financial aspect. Was pretty obvious is that one of the things she talked about was going to the academy, you're in a dorm for four years and you don't have that opportunity to live off campus and build up some furniture and some things like Mm -hmm. that. And I was like, well, yeah, I don't know how much second lieutenants make, but as two second lieutenants, do you think you can make rent? I
0: I can tell you, as a second lieutenant, when I was in back in the dark ages, I made seven grand a year.
1: But could you make rent? Could you afford an apartment?
0: That and peanut butter jellies and a nine eleven. Okay, <laughs> right. but if you were married with somebody else, most of them, it was really tight. Well, it was I think really it, tight. You know,
1: From what I understand, back in the nineties, they were making like thirty five or forty five grand. Yeah. So with a dual income of seventy to ninety grand, yes, they were fine. Yes. And once you realized that, it was like, oh, okay, money's not going to be a problem. No, money's not going to be a problem, right? To be honest with you, how else you going to get people to go come you to a service academy them. unless you pay them something to come out with a guaranteed job? So, you know, once she started putting these things together and all these things that she was worrying about, they just kind of dissipated just by her writing out in the exercise. Because when she came in the next day, she had the paper and she handed it to She said, no, I don't need to read it. Tell me what did you learn? And she told me what she learned. I said, okay, so what's your decision? She said, I'm going to stick with soccer. I'm going to do this. I made a mistake sophomore year by only taking 15 to 18 credits and I'm just going to do it this year. But that's the hard part, but I'm a senior. I know how this place works. So I'll get through it. It's not going to be fun, but the academies are not fun anyway. (laughs) (laughs) So, so then she was able to, what I always, always try to convey to the cadets is that at every other school, all right. This is where your competitive advantage comes in because they came up with every excuse why they couldn't compete. All right. And I just turned every one of those around and I said, you know, look at the other schools and what do you think their toughest part of the day is? You think it's classes? No. The hardest part of the day is practice. What's the best part of your day? Practice. Best part of my day is practice. And what, what, what's the best part about being on the team? Ramps, right? They didn't have to eat, eat with the squad, mm-hmm. right? And they could eat as a team. Tell me about the second best thing. Oh, the travel. I get to leave the academy. Mm-hmm. Okay? All right. So, you know, away games were great, mm-hmm. right? Where every other team is looking, oh, we got to go to an away game. You it's know,
0: framing, isn't it?
1: It's framing. It's it's all about Perspective.
0: We're kind of going through some of the topics here and jumping around a bit, and we're Mm -hmm. completely off script, which is awesome, which is what I like. So, you know, we're talking about potential, and maybe it was the the young lady that was a soccer player or any of the teams. Mm -hmm. And so when you go in and and you're trying to analyze potential, what system or what steps, what do you do to try to take and assess potential?
1: Well, I I don't try to assess potential, all right? Mm -hmm. We we know three things about potential. We can't measure it, we can't predict it, and nobody's ever maximized it. Mm-hmm. so you know the talent management people you know they're all trying to identify potential good luck with that okay
0: Tom Brady right
1: yeah t- you know, he, he's an example but also Peyton Manning yes right yeah and then Ryan Leaf okay In, to use the sports terms but you know uh, GPAs mm-hmm. okay what do you think is the best predictor of success for a high school student
0: probably work ethic anything, anything else it's not GPA, is it? Well, no, they, the, the old axiom, right, is all the A students end up working for all the C students? Yeah.
1: It's not Yeah, it's, it's, it's not GPA, it's not class rank, and it's certainly not SAT and ACT scores. Okay? True. All right? So what researchers have found is that it's leadership and participation of extracurricular activities.
0: You know, it's, it's funny. I was talking to an, an NFL agent, mm-hmm. and he said, predictor of durability in the NFL is multiple sports played during college, not just one. Mm-hmm. And said so that, that really is more of a predictor yeah. of durability than anything.
1: Yeah, that's why in youth sports, specialization is the worst thing you could do to a kid. Mm-hmm. Right? Because they're, they're always working the same joints, they're always working the same part of the body, and they don't get enough time to recover. Well, and- Gretzky...
0: Didn't Gretzky play baseball and some other stuff before he played hockey? I think it was. Most do. Yeah.
1: Right? And, but you also build uh, you know, unique social skills because you know, instead of just hanging out with your specialized friends, you're developing relationships in other teams. So
0: Well, no uh, wonder I did so well. I, didn't, I couldn't play any sport well. And I moved every year. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I had to survive.
1: Yeah, exactly. Those social skills. Yeah. Are really important. That, that you know, that, that's something you and I have in common because I, until I went to college, and it was a college I transferred into, I never went to a school for more than two years straight.
0: Yeah, crazy. Okay. They, you know, it's the old application problem. Where did you go to school? And you go, I need another piece of paper. Yeah. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah. That's okay though.
0: Looking at your model, and we were talking about key features that changes behavior and changes performance for the CEO or the C suite crowd. What can we look forward to on the features that you bring to the table?
1: Well, again, I, I stay in my lane. It's all about strategic execution. So there are a lot of parts to leadership, and I understand that, and they're all important. But I just focus on the strategic execution component, is that if you have a leader who has trouble executing the strategy, one, because they don't manage themselves very well, or two, you know, they don't relate to others very well, or they don't learn enough, or they don't have the right ambition. These are all factors within my model.
0: Yeah, so They've got, they got to be able to do. Yeah,
1: you know, I grew up as a football coach and you know, as a college football coach. And One thing that a lot of people don't understand is that when you get fired, you have to walk home because you know, there's a courtesy car and that a car dealer just gave you, and they're not going to let you keep it.
0: Yeah, it's a performance job.
1: It's a performance job. Right? And so I was, you know, I was conditioned in that manner. And so the ability for people, whether it's football players or CEOs or the bakers, to execute the strategy is paramount. All right? And this is one of the biggest misunderstandings about team cohesion and you know, what good leadership is and can you rally people. When you get inside a locker room in a high-level college football or an NFL locker room, they don't care about that. They just want to know if you can play okay and it's the same thing in the C suite they really don't care about your personality they really don't care about you know what your political leanings are right? and all this other stuff that you know a lot of social psychologists will get into right? it just comes down to performance can you deliver the numbers okay cuz that's what we're here for right first and foremost and through that and team cohesion has never been a predictor of performance okay but the value of performing, the value of executing the strategy, when you share that, that's when people start to bond.
0: How many teams and organizations do you think you've been in in front of your, during your career?
1: I, I don't know. Yeah, so I mean, it's. A bunch. Yeah, a yeah, lot.
0: When, when you go in, yeah. I mean, how many times are you surprised? Can you, you know, for when you go in and go, I think it's going to be this thing or that thing. Can you pick up on that pretty quick? No. Got to I, dig deep to find it.
1: I need the data. And what I learn about the data is that all the answers are in the data. And where I spend most of my time, Bob, you know, once I get the data and I put together the behavioral analysis and then I just keep rewriting them, mm-hmm. all the answers are in the data because the data comes from the manager. And they tell me everything I need to know. It's just a matter of... Finding it and just keep looking at it. Just all the answers are in the data.
0: On many of the management teams, when you present the data and the findings from the data, mm-hmm. are they often surprised? Yeah,
1: yeah, because there's blind spots. huh. You know, and people don't they don't see their blind spots, but they certainly agree with their strengths.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> right. yeah. My and, yeah, and, I'm good Yeah, and
1: for the most part, a lot of their weaknesses you haven't.
0: You know, it's funny, isn't it, when you go, you go, yeah, yeah I'm either a visionary and an executor, I, you know, one or the other, kind of.
1: Well, the, you know, one of the um, behavioral analysis, I call it the executive presence report, it, it measures the managerial tendencies, and I measure it on time and focus. And the time can be the present or future, and the focus can be on the organization or the individual. And it shows four different tendencies. One is the executor, one's the strategist, one is the team builder, and one is the recruiter. And they're going to skew one way or the other, and that's Mm -hmm. fine. And if it's a a really low middle market firm, like one to two million in in valuation, then it's just one person driving performance. Mm -hmm. If one or two of those areas are dormant, that will show why they're not executing strategy
0: Mm
1: -hmm. to the utmost. But within a management team, what you're really looking for, and I'll go into a little bit of the uh, uh, the analysis if you'd like, but with this analysis, it's kind of like a baseball team. Mm-hmm. You don't want three catchers and a shortstop. All right? You don't want three strategists and an executor. All right? You want all four of those to be represented within your management team. And when they're not, when they are skewed, that will explain why strategy isn't being executed consistently. Another one is what I call the leadership execution analysis details seven different factors of individual execution. And to use the baseball analogy, again, is you want everybody to hit. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have a balance here. All right. You want everybody to hit. And I score them on a five-point scale, uh, zero, two to plus two, you know, longitudinally. So it looks kind of like a balance sheet. Anything on the left is bad. Everything on the right is good. You want everybody on the right. Mm -hmm. All right. And when people are on the left, that's not good. And that explains why strategy isn't being executed.
0: From your systems in work, can you move them from left to right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. And a one-score improvement is good. People who score two-score improvement—that is exceptional. Mm-hmm. That means they put a lot of work into it. And the correlation is when they make that move, they make more money. That's basically it's just it. good business. Yeah, it's just good. you know I,
0: I think about the first generation trying to pass a business to the second generation, and they have the people that have been there with them from first generation biz. Then you have the siblings or children coming up through the business. Do you get called into those situations?
1: I haven't been called into a, a, a family situation, mm-hmm. but I was having called into secession plans. Uh-huh. And you know they're just looking for a person who can execute the strategy, and that means. They're looking for somebody who, can, who may have a strategy, mm-hmm. but I don't get into that. But it's nice to have a, a strategy, but you know, if you can't execute it, it's no different than you know, the paintings on the walls here. You That's know, nice. It's, you know, it's just a piece of art. Yeah. And you can appreciate it, but if you can't execute it, what yeah. good is it? I
0: have this really great plan. Good for you. Okay. Yeah, I know. I have <laughs> a great perfect. plan. Good. Did you do anything about it? Uh, no.
1: Well, I did, but you know, it just, this it, happened or that happened. Yeah, and they come up with all kinds of excuses. About why
0: it didn't. The market, really, the competitors, yeah. and the that's environment.
1: That's why strategies only deliver sixty-three percent of what they promise. But then, when you add that on top of somebody who doesn't execute very well, percentages go way down, leading to the strategy execution paradox. So, what do you, you know? Which lever are you going to pull? You're the chairman. What are you going to do?
0: Got to do something.
1: You're going to have to. Do or
0: somebody's going to help you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And but you know, the fact is, you don't know. You may think you know. Mm -hmm. but you don't know.
0: Well, you know, I I think about the, you know, you're the new CEO coming into an organization, right? Mm -hmm. And you got your existing team and you're trying to figure out what you got as far as players and so on. And there may be somebody that you would dictate a task to accomplish. And if they're a non-executor, but they're a big time visionary, that's not going to get done, is it?
1: No, no. But the visionary can develop execution skills. Anybody can develop execution skills. And what's... My model has been described as simple but robust. I like simple. I like simple too. And it's just one thing. And the fact is, any 12-year-old can master these skills. But people who fail to to pay attention to these things, whether they're captains of industry or leaders of, mm-hmm. of nations, it's been their downfall. And so you, I'm sure you've heard the term emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. It's a very important concept, mm-hmm. Okay. What I'm on to is something bigger. Mm -hmm. It's called executive functioning. And emotional intelligence is a subset of executive functioning. And it really has to do with the brain and where people are, what part of the brain is actually being exercised when they're making decisions and conveying judgments. Mm -hmm. And when they're not working from the neocortex, if they're working from the lizard brain, Mm-hmm. All right, the you know the fight or flight, you know, the the survival center. This is where decisions are being dictated by emotions, and that's never a good thing. It's okay to be emotional, but your decisions should dictate what your emotions are. This is a situation where I need to be angry. This is a situation where I need to be extremely joyful and grateful. All right, this is a situation where I really need to be extremely excited. All right. Not that they're, it's basically a difference between, I'm, I'm, I'm looking right over there, and I see a thermostat.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: All right? And are you a thermostat or are you a thermometer? Mm-hmm. A thermostat controls the environment. A thermometer reacts to the environment. All right? Great leaders are thermostats.
0: You know, there was a, a study done by some guys I know out of the uh, West Coast, and they were talking about characteristics of billionaires yeah. and their reaction to stress mm-hmm. and the measured, thoughtful, Time, mm-hmm. not time to get excited. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like an ER physician. Mm-hmm. If you run in the ER and he goes, oh my God, you're bleeding. Mm-hmm. Wrong guy, wrong place.
1: Yeah. What they understand is the same thing as fighter pilots, as commandos, as high-level athletes, is when things get tight, they slow down.
0: Think, yeah. execute, muscle memory, discipline, procedure, yeah. Yeah. training, the yeah. whole bit.
1: All right. And that takes a, a tremendous amount of of executive functioning and that's where i get people to work from more than they used to that's really the only difference in the before and after mm-hmm. but to get there you need a lot of data to figure it out to see what their trigger points are to figure out which strengths to leverage and then which you know weaknesses and blind spots you you got to improve upon as far as what their own obstacles are but when they start working from the uh, the, the executive functioning Uh, more, more than the survival center, that's when their potential is going to be maximized. So I don't really care what their potential is. My model is based on what is the mindset, what is the belief system that enables people to maximize their potential, to execute strategy consistently to the best of their ability.
0: Two things come to mind. One, we're busy talking and the listener's going like, well, how do I find you? So, how do they find you on social media?
1: Okay. This is always a. This is challenge. the quiz. Yeah, this is always a challenge. All right. So, the website is motereconsulting.com. That's M O T E R E. Then, the email is steve.long at motereconsulting.com. LinkedIn is Stephen with a P H dot long 24. And then, Twitter is Steve long 24. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yes, yeah. The, yeah. the things I guess that was – I've worn you out on quizzing, which is almost completely off script. I guess to close out here, maybe an example war story of a before and after where you go into an organization or whatever you do. And, and the key takeaways from before and after um, yeah. war story.
1: I'm trying to th- – yeah, I did finish the CEO secession story, so – let me find another one. There was a, uh, a small business. Mm-hmm. It was an executive search firm. And I was brought in to work with some underachievers mm-hmm. who used to be high performers. But for whatever reason, they have bottomed out. And so I worked with them and got them back to a, not the highest level, but in that second cluster. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then I went to the owners and I said, well, I appreciate the opportunity to work with the low performance, but why don't you give me a shout at your your top four? Because what I learned primarily through athletics is that nobody really cares if you have the best scout team in the country. Mm -hmm. Is that to be a force multiplier, and that's a military term, Mm -hmm. okay? To be a force multiplier, you really got to get the top people involved. And so, because of the success with the low performers, then they gave me a shot at the top four. And that's when things, you know, that's when the roof was just one. That's leverage. Off. Okay? Yeah. Is that they, um, they broke monthly, quarterly, and yearly revenue records by a significant amount. And what a lot of people don't understand is that most performance is all based on a bell curve right, is that you got your 70% in the middle who win some who lose some, right? And to take an athletic example, most coaches are, are 70% of them are in that area. They are, they, they're they they about 500. Uh, they might have a couple of good years, might have a couple of bad years, but pretty much they're 500. And then the people on the bottom end of the bell curve, they don't last very long.
0: They move a lot.
1: They move a lot and then they, they don't stay as the head coach very long. Yeah. Okay. But then people at the top end, they, they win a lot, But how do you move that needle? And the biggest mistake I see in business is that they try to go uphill. They try to take their lowest performers and just make them mediocre. You know, you're pushing a rock up a hill there. That's hard work. But if you take the top performers and you make them better, what people don't understand is that those mediocre performers will always be mediocre in relation to the top performers. Once they see the top performers taking off, they feel an internal, most of the time it's subconscious, but sometimes it's conscious, a subconscious or a conscious pressure to say, I better get moving. Mm -hmm. Because the top performers are moving and I got to stay at least average in relation to them. That's how you move the needle. You take your best performers and you make them even better. And you're not going to do that through IT. You're not going to do that through a change transformation program. It's only going to happen through programs like this, Mm -hmm. is that you make your best even better, and that puts a pressure on the middle, and they start to get better. And then the bottom guys, they may or may not come along, but that's where Jack Rell says that's where you cut the tail off.
0: You know, I, I think about the top performers, and so you're in and there's a group of guys, gals, That are absolutely stellar in what they do. Mm -hmm. And yet there's a barrier to go to whatever the next level is for them. What do you typically see as their barrier to the next level?
1: It ranges. It all depends upon the person. That's why all the answers are in the data. There's no assumptions I can make. Okay. Is that they come in with a clean slate. They are who they are. Mm -hmm. That's why they're in control. Executive coaching kind of situation. When I do workshops, it's a little bit more broad-based, but I still have the data and I can tailor my teaching to them. And depending on the size of the audience, I can really target specific issues. But it's futile. Is
0: there a predominant characteristic blind spot of a top producer? If you were skew your bell curve of all your data. No. Spread right across the spectrum.
1: No, they have all kinds of issues. Mm-hmm. So like this one client I just started working with, actually tested very well, except in my tests. And what shows is that his mental toughness scores were exceptional. And that's usually the toughest skill to master, is dealing with frustration right? and overcoming adversity. But his other scores weren't all that good. I asked him, so where did you learn that? Now, he's a BYU grad, and he was sent to Sweden for his mission. And first, he learned the language. And then he gets over there and realizes that 90% of the people over there
0: speak English. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> we loaded up and shot in the wrong direction. Yeah, it's like a
1: really hard language to learn. But then he's asked to basically build a congregation. Uh-huh. And in Sweden, religion is not a big thing. So he got mostly rejection. So he learned how to deal with rejection, how to deal with failure through that experience. And when I was working with athletes, golfers in particular, the elite golfers, they're used to being in the middle of the fairway. But for hacks like me, it's no big thing to be in the woods. Just go find your ball and hack it out.
0: That's why I hunt. Yeah. Because I spend all my time in the woods. In the woods, exactly.
1: (laughs) But, you know, these elite golfers, when they get into the woods or even to the rough, they're like, what do I do with this? They have no idea how to adapt. Okay. So basically, the ability to learn, the ability to adapt, Those are the key features of the model.
0: I think about, as you're talking, so you have this broad range of strengths and weaknesses. So I go through and I've got my assessment and I'm good in the blue and not good in the red, but red's critical for me for success. Mm -hmm. Then for you, are you able to take and teach and or provide tools or techniques or...
1: Yeah, that's really the value of the program is that there's a lot of data companies out there and they'll tell you what's wrong. And they'll tell you what's right. Yeah. But... Here you go. Yeah, there's a commercial out there now, like the guy's in a dentist chair, and the guy is showing him that he has three or four cavities. It said, well, no, I'm just a dental technician. I can't really fix that. And so my job at Kansas and at Air Force was to enhance the performance of the student athletes. So the most important thing I have, people get really fixated on the analysis because it's tangible. Mm -hmm. Okay. But by far, the most important thing is the catalog of educational strategies and counseling techniques I have. Basically, I'm changing their belief system. Okay? I'm changing how they think. And that's the magic trick. So when I change that, they see the problem in a completely different manner. The problem doesn't go away. They just see it in a different way so they can attack it in a different way.
0: They learn tools and mechanisms. Exactly. You know, there was a book. They learn
1: how to think. That's basically what it comes down to because we're not taught. Our educational system does not teach people how to think, All right. And I'm kind of grateful for that because it provides me with a rewarding um, profession that I don't have to be on a campus for.
0: I think about, we were talking before the show that you're coming into a creative period where you're going to start doing some work Mm -hmm. and there'll be some publications where you're actually working with some elite athletes in various disciplines and so on. So that'll be coming up in the future for you. You know, I think about the feedback loop Mm -hmm. just from the podcast where I talk to really bright people on a regular basis and you go, I get tutored effectively by CEOs and business owners and the folks that work with them every week. And, you know, it's the unanticipated benefit. The unintended consequences. Things you wouldn't think of when you started. Yeah. You know, and you kind of go, why is that person Mm -hmm. so unique in this one area? Mm -hmm. And I'm sure for you, as you go through your career and you get continual feedback, you go, there are some commonalities and then there's some that aren't.
1: That got my attention first at Kansas and then at Air Force is when the athletes were using this not only for athletic performance, but then academic performance. And then at the academy, people who were not athletes, who were looking to win postgraduate scholarships, they were coming to see me. But the relationship part of it really surprised me. One gal got engaged. She came to me and said, swim season was over. And she says, well, I want to get engaged. I was like, okay. And then I ran into her at the end of the semester we're both we ran into each other you know, jogging on the base. So what's going on? She goes, and she showed me her ring finger. I was like, whoa.
0: Task oriented.
1: Yeah, that kind of initially it scared me, but then I worked with a fellow whose wife was diagnosed with brain cancer, mm-hmm. and he was in a full commission business, and he hadn't made any money for eighteen months, and he had two small children. It's not as serious as commandos and the and the kids families, yeah, but it's serious, and he was able to turn things around. Those are the unintended consequences. A cadet that I worked with who was a boxer. Mm-hmm. And he ended up into the national tournament when he didn't really qualify. He only got in because somebody didn't, they realized that he didn't have the grades or he actually wasn't even a student. So they had to toss him out of the tournament. And he just came in and he says, you yeah, how can I expect to win if I didn't even qualify? And I just said, you know, you put the burden of proof on the other guy. Just go out there and box. All right. And then he actually ended up cross-commissioning into the Marines as special forces. Mm-hmm. And one day I get emotional about this. One day I get a letter. And this is after I left the academy. I get a letter. And it's handwritten, but there's no return address. It's just kind of sketchy, to be honest with you. But I open it up, and it's this guy. And he starts telling me that he's being deployed to Afghanistan. And, you know, he's got 30 people underneath him. Mm-hmm. Right? And it says, I'm just going to put the burden of proof on them. And I was like, okay. And then, like a year and a half later, I get a phone call. and It's him. He says, hey, Doc, I just want to let you know. We put the burden of proof on them, and we all came home.
0: You look at that, and you go the upon stuff in those days. Yeah. And you kind of go, well, that's not exactly what I thought would happen. I didn't know, no. And I think so much of that stuff, when you function as a mentor for some description, you never really know. Yeah. And then sometimes out of the blue, somebody will come back, and you go, well, that's not exactly where I saw that going.
1: Yeah. I mean, he ended up winning the national championship in boxing. Mm-hmm. And the lessons you learn from these extracurriculars it's just not sports, but it's drama and debate. This guy just applied it to whatever else he was doing, and then applied it's a tool. It. it is a tool. It's like a tool, anything else that we gather as we go mm-hmm. through life. But where else can you get it? That's the thing. And then where else can you measure it? How do you know you actually did something with it? That's the part that I don't understand with my competitors. And well, this is what you get. This is what you'll see who you are, and then you'll get all this other stuff, and then you'll improve your performance. But you can apply it to just about anything. It's up to you. I'm being brought in to help you execute the strategy in this business. That's the practical application. But wherever else you want to apply it, you go right ahead.
0: Mm -hmm. It's a framework. Yeah, It's a framework.
1: Yeah, It's universally applied.
0: Well, you know, with that being said... I have harassed you for quite some time, (laughs) which is a plus, but I would say to the folks listening, I said, if you're in doubt or you really don't know, the worst thing you can do is not reach out. And so make sure that they reach out to you and at least say, can you help me or how does this work? Mm -hmm. And so Steve, I really appreciate you coming in. We didn't do anything (laughs) off the script to speak of. That's fine. Which is exactly how I like them to go. Yeah. And so I appreciate it sincerely, and folks reach out to him, and we look for good things.
1: Well, I appreciate your interest, and thanks again for the opportunity.
0: Absolutely.